0: Welcome to Fiscal Fitness with your hosts, John Grace and Daniel Medina. They have all the questions about investing, planning, retirement, and the future. You could say it's all they live for. While it can seem daunting getting everything sorted out and the important questions answered, they'll do their best to make it that much easier. Now, here's John Grace and Daniel Medina
1: welcome ladies and gentlemen john grace and daniel medina here fiscal fitness at voice america so glad you could spend some time with us this uh, beautiful one wednesday afternoon and as you know we like talking about what's going on in the market how people can be prepared for the good the bad and the unforeseen and we typically start off with our, our outline and then get into what we see happening with the market so the, the three subjects that we intend to cover today with you is first uh when it comes to the 401k and by the way this applies to all uh, employer retirement plans. So whether it's 457, 403B, 451, you know, whatever the number might be, 450, 401k, don't get lost in, in, in the number game. Okay. Pay attention to what the options are and what people think, because that's probably pretty uh, pretty much the sense that everybody's thinking the same thing. And, and that's why we like to put some light on this subject, because sometimes we're all thinking the same thing, but it's just wrong. For example, uh, forty over forty percent of Americans say they pay nothing in their four hundred and one k fees. Again, 401 k. Four hundred three B. That's how people seem to think, and let's just get to the right to the, the the center of things. That's just not accurate. So we'll dive into that so that you understand what's really going on here and how sometimes the the shell game gets played and the expenses don't get disclosed and what some of the regulators are doing to make for more and better full disclosure. And then we want to look at married folks, right? We're, we're seeing a number of uh, folks after this uh, COVID situation, as we talked about, we thought would happen here. What we saw was a pattern in Wuton that a lot of people were filing for uh, divorce. And the question becomes, okay, well, whether or not you're married, if you've been married, what happens if the other person dies? Uh, what if you die first financially? Who, who's going to make sure it's not a, an event for you? You might miss the person, but you don't want to miss the money. So we'll be looking at 10 important issues Daniel discovered for particularly for, for married people. But let's understand, it's not just it's not that you need to be married as much as it is the case that you may have another person in your household and you're interdependent on each other's income. So the real question is married or not but actually, as I say, how can you miss that person but not miss their money? That's the question. And then we want to really zero in on uh, several questions. We've identified seven. I'm sure there are more. But a uh, question to ask your current financial advisor or someone you're thinking of hiring you know since we've been in the business I've been in the business in 79 Daniel since 2006 financial advisors tend to be diligent thoughtful thorough they're pretty much uh, very smart uh, they don't smell bad they brush their teeth they don't use bad language you can invite them safely to your children's weddings uh, and truthfully we are often lazy as a very hot spot right that would be hell, of course. So we're going to identify seven smart questions to ask who you've hired or who you are thinking of hiring. So as we look at what's going on in the, in the markets today, just to kind of put things in perspective, we see that uh, stocks, for the most part, gained today with the major equity indexes beginning September, trading near or at all-time highs, to inter-day kind of all-time highs. Technology stocks outperformed. That's not a surprise. So it was an intraday record for the NASDAQ today. At the same time the S&P advanced, while the Dow was little changed, U.S. crude oil prices dipped to around $68 per barrel following an OPEC meeting, and that's where members increased output by the expected 400,000 barrels per day each month through December to help meet what we see as rising energy demand. The S&P closed out a seventh straight monthly gain in August, rising nearly 3 percent just during the month of August, as strong earnings growth and ongoing economic recovery and a still accommodated Federal Reserve, helped offset fresh concerns over the Delta variant spread. Yet the NASDAQ outperformed with a monthly rise of 4% as investors piling back into technology and growth stocks seen as benefiting from stay-in-place behavior. Now, investors are entering a historically more challenging month. That would be September. And the question becomes, might it become a September to, to remember? You see, September is typically the worst month of the year for stocks. And while equities are riding this momentum from a seven-month winning streak, they're also extending an atypically long period without a pullback. By that, I mean that given the S&P has not had a 5% or greater correction since last October, that's a long time to go without a 5% correction Will that continue well we're going to say you want to play both sides of that net if you will so the bull market so far has laughed at nearly all the worry signs of 2021 where they say stocks climb the wall of worry but let's not forget that again september is historically the worst month of the year and and we see that uh, the s p itself gained nothing in september in the past five years posted losses during the month in both 2016 and 2020. september is the market's worst month going all the way back to 1950 according to stock traders almanac All three market indexes lost more ground in the ninth month than in any other of the year. Specifically, the S&P 500 dropped uh, four-tenths of one percent on average in September, and it's fallen more than half the time. Now, keep in mind that the S&P could very well shoot up seven, after shooting up seven straight months, uh, but this is, uh, might continue, but this has only happened 15 times since 1950. According to uh, Ryan Dietrich, he's a LPL chief financial market strategist, And when it does, good things are usually, you know, in in the offings. But as I say, we want you to prepare it for the good, the bad, and the unforeseen. Right now, it's interesting, just today, the Dow has moved into negative territory. It's been up all day. And as you know, as we talk about this, sometimes you get a reading on the market and you think that's the way it closes, and then things come apart in the last 50 minutes or so. We'll see how this happens. But it's interesting that if the market closes in the red today, that's following Tuesday in the red for the Dow, Monday in the red. Friday was a very good day, uh, but uh, it was almost offset by the loss on the day before, just last Thursday, August 26. So that's the Dow. And then when we look at uh, the S&P 500, we see it's barely in positive territory, up uh, 3.47%. Uh, points today. Oh, by the way, I should go back. Let's look at the Dow's up 15.5% so far this year, 15.5%. That's that's really quite good as an annualized number. As far as the S&P, it's up about 20.77 year-to-date. That's, of course, from January 1 through to date with about 50 minutes or so before closing, but up modestly 3.39 as of this actual moment. The NASDAQ has had uh, a very good year as well. Uh, up 19.3%. Again, these are all good numbers. So they, they were annualized. Hopefully, they, these don't get erased, these good positive numbers for the end of the year. Some people believe that's exactly what's going to happen. We don't predict the future. We want to prepare for the good, the bad, and the unforeseen. As I say, we want to learn how to play both sides of the net so that you're a winner, no matter how the score turns out. Up about 60 points or so, the NASDAQ is so far this year. So let's look at... Uh, what uh, people are thinking, Daniel. And I I know you're very interested in this, that we've got fees eating away at Americans' retirement savings, and yet we're typically woefully ignorant about this occurrence. So thanks to the uh, GAO, that's the Government Accountability Office, what did they find in terms of who doesn't understand the fees and who thinks that there are no fees whatsoever? How many people?
2: Well, 40% of, 40, of 401k participants don't understand the fees they're paying. That's actually lower than I thought it would be. I would, I would have guessed it was higher than that. And it's, uh, it's also possible people say they understand and they really don't. Um, 41% believe they are not paying any fees in their 401k or their employer-sponsored plan which is pretty typical based on the conversations that we've had. A lot of times when we're talking to people about their 401k and we ask them, what are you paying? They have no idea. And this is not uncommon at all. Our industry is notorious for, hiding and layering fees. I don't know if it's something that we do on purpose as an industry. Uh, I'm going to give us the benefit of doubt and say it's just a complicated topic, but it's notorious for doing it. And in 401ks in particular, there's two kinds of fees. There's administrative fees, and then there's investment-related fees. Administrative fees are the fees that relate to the the structure of the account. So those are things like record Those are things like record-keeping, sending out distributions, closing accounts, administrative fees that go along with holding the account. The investment-related fees uh, are things that, that that relate to the investments inside the 401k. And a lot of people don't understand what a 401k is just in general. Think of it like a cup. It's just something to put an investment in an IRA, a 401k, an individual account. It's like a registration. What goes in the account are the investments, and and there's always fees associated with every investment. And depending on what kind of 401k or where the 401k is, the size of it, the fees can vary pretty drastically but they could be an upfront low, which is a sales charge to go into the position. They could be exp- an expense ratio that are, are any is anywhere from 0.05%, and we've seen it as high as 5% uh, per year. And sometimes there's advisory fees that are associated with the 401k accounts, but these are all different investment related fees. So there's layers of fees in every 401k. It's never free. The question is for the participant is what fees are you paying and how much are they? Different 401ks can structure fees differently. So some 401ks can structure the administrative fees. So the company pays all those fees and the participants only pay their investment related fees, and then it can go anywhere in between that. Um, The participant will always pay their own investment related fees, but everything else can be combined or shared by the by the
1: plan. And when you say shared by the plan, the employer costs versus the employee costs of the plan participants, employee costs?
2: Right. So the plan, the plan itself, your company has fees that are just associated with having the plan. Um, the participants or the employees don't pay those. Those are the those are the, the company's plan um, Those are the company's costs. But there's also fees inside the 401k that they that the participant will is responsible for and the company can bear themselves if they choose to. A lot of times we see that with with um, nonprofit organizations where their their operating expenses are, are are lower, so they don't have the income to really pay all those fees, so they pass it on to their to their
1: employees. And. Uh... FEES CAN BE SMALL, MOST OF US, SO MANY OF US DON'T KNOW WHAT THEY ARE. AND AS YOU SAY, OUR INDUSTRY REALLY, WE CALL IT A SHELL GAME. AGAIN, it's, WE'RE NOT SURE IT'S INTENTIONAL, BUT WE we, we CALL THIS A FEE AND THAT a, a COST. AND, YOU KNOW, WE SHOULD BE USING CONSISTENT TERMS TO UNDERSTAND WHAT, the, what ARE YOU PAYING? Well, THAT'S THE REAL QUESTION. AND WHAT ARE YOU GETTING? because it may be that you know in an upmarket even small fees can significantly reduce your retirement savings over time but the real question becomes what fees are you paying and what fees are you paying that are worth paying for example uh, instead of being a passive account where it goes up like a, a rocket and comes down like a rocket at the same speed how do they how do they say the market uh, takes the stairs up and the elevator uh, the elevator up and the, well the elevator up the stairs up and the elevator down there we go. Uh, so you know, if that means that the account's declining faster than you had ever intended, uh, where's your stop loss? Where do you get off? Where do you put the money off to safety, like cash? In passive accounts, typically that is not the case, and those accounts tend to be less costly. Active accounts can be more costly, but if, for example, you know, a more costly account, the when the market was off 37 percent and your portfolio was off 41, and maybe there was uh you know somewhere else that you might look to see where uh, the fee might be higher, but the loss might be less. Hypothetically, that's some of the homework that we think is worth doing to see what your exact situation is. And of course, there's uh, no promise, you know past performance is no guarantee of anything. But if we all went down like the Titanic and that's not fun for you, what are you doing to keep your assets whole or at least keep your assets from being handed to you as opposed to you, you watching your life savings get hit like uh, the roller coaster ride that you don't want to get on anymore as an adult?
2: Well a lot of that work can't be done in 401k so what I would encourage people to do is to talk to their advisors on what uh, what can or can't be done inside of inside of 401k.
1: And that's the whole thing and, and ask them to disclose all the fees they're aware of and and, and show proof too uh, because it's sometimes things that we don't really uh, investigate ourselves as the professionals and and we should be really on top of that And I think that's uh, what the Department of Labor, is uh, trying to do to fix the problem, right, Uh, through the GAO, the Government Accounting Organization, uh, to look at uh, how they can make recommendations in a matter deemed effective. I think that's the the language that participants have investment options with fee benchmarks to assess what's normal and what might be excessive and available ticker information so that they have more details, assuming they're going to look, but at least you have more to see. Is that kind of a summary?
2: yeah that's that's a kind of a summary what's what i think is fascinating is a few years ago there was a new regulation that foreman case had to provide a fee disclosure that goes out to their participants on an annual basis apparently 45 percent of people who actually get the fee disclosure can't read it and don't know how to figure out their own investment costs and part of the problem is and this is a gao suggestion is to use consistent language for fees Yes, it is definitely a problem in our industry because we call it expense ratios, we call it advisory fees, we call it uh, upfront loads, uh, 12B1 charges. These are all different different kinds of charges that get charged on your account, on our, our participants' account. And they're all different fees, but the bottom line is that they're all a fee. So when you're looking at this and you're looking at an expense ratio versus a 12B1 expense versus an advisory fee, how are you as a participant supposed to know what applies to you and what doesn't and how do you kind of account for that and and language is definitely a problem because it's inconsistent from from um 401k to 401k or kind of fee to kind of fee They're they're just different names for it which makes it very confusing
1: and correcting myself folks the geo stands for government accountability office not organization so uh clean that up a little bit so yeah we suggest that uh you Provide, you know, you you take a look and look at your cumulative effective fees on savings over time. Uh, look to see that you have a working specific uh, Department of Labor web address for such information and requiring that fee disclosure include the agency's graphic illustration. And it's they're, we're looking at uh, the big fighting fee benchmarks which we think is a good idea because you know you can say something's high but relative to what so you know it's easy to say it's high or it's cheap or even to believe it's free when it's not but uh if you don't have anything to compare it against like 98.6 you're really kind of uh you know making things up that might give you some sense of uh, comfort but they're just not 100 percent accurate like uh you know four out of ten people believing that uh they pay nothing for their 401k or or uh, employer-sponsored plans. And of course, that's just not accurate. That's just flat out wrong. So we're going to go to a quick break and we'll come back with uh, looking at how folks who are in relationships are certainly living together, interdependent upon each other's income, how, how they can make sure whoever dies first, the survivor is going to be squared away, looking at these 10 financial issues for folks. It's about married people, but again, we're going to say it's about people who are living together because you're interdependent upon each other's income. With that, we'll be right back, so please stay tuned. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit facebook.com forward slash voice America.
0: At Investors Advantage Corporation, our trademark statement, the proof is in the planning, represents the value we see in hard work and perseverance, coupled with a sound plan for the future. With the challenges facing our country's frontline workers, we see a lot being asked and not a lot given in return. 495-2077. That's YBPOOR.com or 805-495-2077. We are located in Thousand Oaks, California. Thank you for your service, and we look forward to lending a hand through your financial journey. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Now, back to Fiscal Fitness. Welcome
1: back, folks. John Grayson, Daniel Medina here, Fiscal Fitness at Voice America. Glad you could spend our time together. And we're going to really address uh, four married folks. And we'll get to the part where we see a little line of separation for folks who are not married but living together, independent upon each other's income. You know, it's, it's a doubt. It's, a, it's going to be the case that one spouse is going to outlive the other. So the question is how to plan for a comfortable old age uh, retirement period where you make work optional which means that you don't have to retire but it's nice knowing that you can afford to. And daniel you found thanks to marketwatch uh like uh what do we have here uh 10 different uh, items that people should be uh, making making notes on and 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 checking starting with the very most important one and that is uh social security. So what should uh, uh married couples uh, and their social security benefits uh, that of course consists of two workers what should they uh, what should they be looking at here
2: well first thing before we start this this section a lot of these things apply to to older individuals so when i say older we're talking the like 50s 60s or retirement age or pre-retirement age for the younger for younger people the the most important thing to for a married couple to look at is life insurance um, god forbid one of the spouses passes away and the other one and they're independent on each other's income that's the single most financially devastating thing that can happen it's uh, if you're both if you're married and you're both making fifty thousand a year and then one of them suddenly dies your income gets cut in half as well you were used to making 100 now you just got cut it just got cut in half so for younger couples the single most important thing for, for a lot of the times, and this is really neglected, is life insurance. How much life insurance do you need? What are you gonna do with it? when? What's the surviving spouse gonna do with it when they get it? And how are they gonna make sure that financially, one of them passing away is a non-event?
1: Well, and on that note, uh, folks, you might remember, we are doing financial planning at no cost for essential workers. And with one couple that we use as an example, mid thirties, She's making 60, he's making 40. So here's the question. if each of them need exactly what the other one was earning, And this applies whether you're married or not. If each of you are in a situation where you're dependent on her 60,000 and she's dependent on your 40,000, whatever the combination might be. So Daniel, if you're using that 4% rule in terms of withdrawal rate, if uh, she's dependent on his 40,000, that means uh, she needs to have, what, $1 million on him in life insurance today, right? right. And right. if uh, he's dependent on her 60000 and he needs every dime, what's that number? Is it like 1.25? 1.5. 1.5. One point five. Okay, see that this is this is so important for you folks to figure out and notice how we talk back and forth so we can get closer. It's not that complicated, but it's like throwing darts in the dark. Oh, we have insurance. I got five hundred thousand. She's got five hundred thousand. We're worth more dead than alive. Well, if you use a four percent rule on five hundred thousand, and that other person passes away again, married or not, four percent on five hundred thousand is a whopping twenty thousand dollars a year. And uh, you know that may run out to about uh, sixteen hundred dollars a month. That's vastly different if you were used to forty thousand or sixty thousand dollars when you have to get by on twenty thousand. But this is this is there's no right answer. In other words, there's no one size fits all. It's hundred percent individual. Each breadwinner needs to look in the mirror and say, okay, if that other person isn't here what does that mean to me financially? And how can I do the math to make sure all I have to do is present this death certificate. I get a check in this case for him of of $1.5 million. Hopefully I can put that to work in places where maybe the return is five, six, 7% annually, but the withdrawal is 4%. So the withdrawal is less than the return, right? So 4% on 1.5 is 60,000. Now the person can go through the agony of the loss of the life, but know that financially that won't be part of that agony. That's so important and and we just can't uh, emphasize that enough. And you're talking about younger people, Daniel. Uh, I know one of the issues is uh, social security. And, and for all people, but particularly working people and especially younger people, it's important to look at your Social Security benefits. Go to ssa.gov, put in all the information that identifies you as you, and then make sure the government is giving you credit for your work history and your income history. They didn't drop a job out okay if you don't make sure that happens that it's it's it it doesn't happen so it's one of those things you should be doing at least annually to see that you're getting the credits that you deserve so that you can get the income from social security when you choose to or when you want to is that fair
2: yes that's very fair uh everyone needs to have a good idea on what their social security is and for the most part people got out of the habit of looking at their statements because for a while they didn't get it and some people are getting it now, and most people aren't. So go to ssa.gov, create an account, and check on your Social Security benefits. I'm, I'm amazed when how many people don't have not seen a statement or have no idea what their benefit is um, for, for years now.
1: Well, it's even important for people who are divorced, because if your former spouse is, has filed, you may find there are some Social Security benefits that you can derive right now. You don't have to wait until you file. So again, this is these are one of those things that are really important to keep your eye on that ball. But most of us, uh, you know, we, we take the easy way out. We don't really sweat the details. So what well, else, Daniel? Well, on Social Security
2: for, for a married yeah. couple, uh, the, the way the way it typically the way it works is when somebody when one of the spouses passes away. If they're both receiving social security, then the survivor gets the larger of the benefits. So if she has, if she's getting a thousand dollars a month in social security, he's getting $2,000 a month and one of them passes away, then the benefit is the larger of the two, $2,000 per month. That's a net loss in income, but at least it's the higher of the two.
1: Right. You don't get to add the total. You get to move up to the higher of the two.
2: Right. And depending on your age, you could claim you if it makes sense, you can claim a survivor's benefit or your own benefit and let one grow or the other grow um, longer, longer. to to claim that benefit. So as an example, if your spouse was say 66 and you were 59 and passed away, then you could take their survivor benefit and defer taking your benefit. Your benefit will will continue to go up. And then at some point it might make sense to switch over from the survivor benefit to your own benefit if it it becomes higher at some point when you turn 66, as an
1: example. And and when you look at your social security folks, don't just look at how soon you get how much. Be mindful that uh, by virtue of waiting a year, each year you do, if you think longevity is on your side, you get an 8% increase under the current arrangements. That might change, but that's the way it is today. That benefit does peak or top out at age 70, so you're not going to get any increases after age 70. But some people who are continuing to work may want to postpone receiving Social Security. And notice, again, you get an 8% increase as far as your benefit is concerned whenever you start. And that's a decision you can look at annually. But uh, if you think you're going to die soon, then probably should start it right away. If you think longevity is on your side, you might look to delaying your Social Security. And certainly, if you have longevity on your side, it's going to take you a while to catch up if you wait later. But you're going to be receiving more money. And for some people, they look at it as a, as a wonderful goal uh, to consider I can start my Social Security, but each year I don't. I, I won't. Uh, and I'll top out at uh, the seventy. That's where that's my goal. And it kind of gives them a goal or something that they're strive for and kind of get excited about that. The longer I live, the more money I get.
2: Yeah, uh, Going on to pension benefits. Um, this is this is an interesting one because pensions can be very complicated or can be very simple. They're all over the place. Uh, they all work differently, but the basic question to ask your pension about your pension benefit, if you're still lucky to have a pension benefit, is how much income do I get, and if I die, how much does my spouse get? This is a. I think this is an overlooked question. A lot of times, when people look at their benefits, what they What it typically looks like is is like four or five or even more possible different options. And what people always tend to do is they go to the highest number. Whatever's the highest number on the page, that's the benefit that they think they get. Well, guess what? That's always going to be your life only with nothing to your spouse if you pass away. Mm. And if you you both live till age... To this to, to the same day, then it's never an issue. But if the if if one if the person that has the pension passes away and all that income goes away and the other person is depending on it, now you're in a bad now you're in a bad spot. How do you make up for that lost income?
1: And this once, is an eyes wide open kind of situation where both parties should be paying attention to the decisions that are being made. And you have to do the math because as Daniel's pointing out, if it's single life and one person gets it and the other person and you might've gotten a higher amount until that person died, but the next person gets zero. Would that be okay? Again, it's a, it's not a all or nothing uh, kind of a issue. It's hundred percent customized. What makes sense for you and your situation. And then when you're looking at joint life options, there's different joint life op- options.
2: There's an option where you both, it covers both of your lives. So it's no matter how long you live. And then there's options that cover both lives for a certain period of time. As an example it could be 10 years or life whichever short whichever shorter so if the spouse if you take a 10-year option and the person who has the the, the benefit lives more than 10 years then that benefit is not available
1: to the surviving spouse and if you do opt for a single life uh, because that option is so severe the good news is that the spouse must typically give written approval to get his or her signature notarized, so that you you sign off on what you decided it wasn't done in the in the night, and you didn't you never knew what the spouse did. You know it's, what the spouse did because you had to notarize that you're okay with the single life uh, choice.
2: Sometimes what makes what could make sense because the, the the life only option is, is typically so much higher than all the other ones, what we'll what we'll look at sometimes is if we got if we got the single life option and then got life insurance on that person to cover if they did pass away at any point prior before the other spouse to, to make up for the difference in income. That's something we'll look at too a lot of the times.
1: And it's a good option again to look at because with all of the quote unquote extra money. Can you take that extra money and apply it to getting a life insurance policy? And now the survivor knows, okay, I'm happy to sign off because, uh, you know, I only needed 60. And now I've got uh, $2 million worth of life insurance. 4% of that is Um, 80,000. I'll sign off for not getting the 60 or whatever it is, right? Uh, For the death benefit of $2 million and a withdrawal of 4%. Now my income is even higher than it was before. And I could do with this. With this benefit what i want to in terms of who's next in line as opposed to it being something where when i die it ends so the next one
2: is annuities and annuities are actually very similar to pensions
1: uh, pension benefits
2: uh, a lot of times they go hand in hand with the different options for income so if you're if you have a pension or you have annuity it, they can be very complex it's important to know what the options are and exactly what they mean uh, next is life insurance and Life insurance, it's typically, it's needed for younger couples. As you get older, so long as you're doing everything else correctly, that means saving for your retirement account, saving for retirement and putting enough away where you'll be able to sustain yourself in retirement, then life insurance typically isn't needed later in life, like through through um, retirement years. So a lot of times what we'll do for, for life insurance is we'll use term policies because it's a it's a temporary problem we want it we want a temporary solution and a term life insurance policy offers us that it's the cheapest possible insurance for a certain period of time say 20 years if we're if we're looking at somebody that's uh in their 40s and we're looking at um making work optional in their 60s that's about a 20-year period that we need to cover once they get if they're doing everything else correctly once they get to retirement the plan is for them to have enough assets where they're their money can take care of them, the, both of them, for the rest of their
1: lives. You effectively that, need the insurance while you're contributing to your accounts and hopefully you reach your goal and now you effectively become self-insured and life insurance becomes certainly optional if you have achieved the the ability of reaching the goals financially. Another.
2: On the other hand, if you're not doing everything any, every all those other little things correctly, you might need a permanent solution, which would be a whole life policy, which would cover the person's life uh, forever. And uh, so, well, until they pass away, no matter how long that is. So, it's important to that your situation is, is particular and unique. So, it's important to talk to, to a professional about, about what makes sense for you.
1: And that's what's important we're not saying buy term and invest the difference term is the best thing for everybody all the time i think you can hear us talk that there are nuances is term appropriate for this situation is permanent life appropriate for that situation here are the cost let's look at it you decide what you think is the right course of action but don't just go out there and science like people say, oh, I've got more, we're more dead and alive, right? We've got 500,000. <laughs> well, again, does that, is that going to be enough for you? Let's do the math and let's look at the options and make sure you're making these decisions with your eyes wide open. So next is tax rates.
2: And this is a fairly simple one. Tax rates, Archie, are lower for married couples than they are for individuals. So God forbid one of them passed, a married one of the married persons pass away or one of the people in the couple, then your tax bracket, if you're making the same amount of money is likely going to go up simply by the, by the fact that you're not, you're not widowed. So this mm-hmm. is something important to look at uh, what happens if one of them passes away, what's going to happen to the taxes. And that's something we can account. We can kind of, we can account for with, with life insurance if it's, if it's needed. Next is Medicare. Uh, Medicare premiums basic Medicare premiums are charged per person so if the person passes one of them passes away the other spouse ends up paying the exact same premiums Mm. and it's possible that they actually even pay higher premiums if they're making the same amount of money where they were married or when they when they're now single then IRMA comes into into account and that stands for income related monthly adjustment amount and the deduction the the limits for married couples, are is higher than for individuals. Very similar to tax brackets. So if you're in the same tax bracket, if you're making a uh, hundred thousand dollars as a married couple, and then when you passes away, and now you're still making hundred thousand dollars, your the tax the, the the tax break is at eighty eight thousand, whereas for for couples it's one hundred seventy six thousand. So you're now suddenly in in a situation where you're going to have to pay higher a higher premium for your Medicare, simply because now you're single.
1: Very similar to tax. That catches people by surprise.
2: Yeah, yeah, it's it. It almost doesn't seem logical, but that's the way it works.
1: That's the way it is.
2: What about IRAs? So IRAs uh, are interesting. Interesting topic because they're they're usually if you're married, if you're a married couple, uh, when one person passes away, the other can assume the IRA themselves. So they 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 almost take it over. They just put their name on it. Sometimes it may it can make sense for the individual to treat the IRA as an inherited IRA. And an inherited IRA is very different than a traditional IRA. In an inherited IRA, you have to start taking distributions um, right away or within 10 years, but you also miss the 10% penalty if you're under 59 and a half. So, in the case where, if in a case where we're looking at one spouse is over 59 and a half and one spouse is significantly lower than, younger than 59 and a half, it might make sense to to treat it as an inherited IRA so you can start accessing those funds sooner without that 10% penalty. Okay. And so, and that's, that's uh, again, that's a very unique situation that you really should talk to a professional about.
1: Don't try and do this at home
2: yeah it's it's not not that it's complicated but there's a, there's a lot of information that goes into all this and for the most part people aren't going to just aren't going to know that so financial professionals this is what we do this is what we get paid for so rely re, ask questions don't a lot of times people kind of just want to ask their friends or go to google and start searching but it, that can be confusing and now you get a whole
1: bunch of information um and, or misinformation misinformation right? <laughs> So we're going to have to take a quick break, and we'll be right back finishing up with our little list here and dig into the questions to ask your financial advisor, one you've hired or one you thinking you've hired. Stay tuned, folks. We'll be right back.
2: Voice America is on your favorite smart speaker. If you have Alexa or Google Home, go ahead and give us a try. Hey,
0: Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast on TuneIn, At Investors Advantage Corporation, our trademark statement, the proof is in the planning, represents the value we see in hard work and perseverance, coupled with a sound plan for the future. With the challenges facing our country's frontline workers, we see a lot being asked and not a lot given in return. That's ybpoor.com or 805-495-2077. We are located in Thousand Oaks, California. Thank you for your service and we look forward to lending a hand through your financial journey. The bottom line in business talk. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Fiscal Fitness. To reach the show today, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to contact at ybpoor.com. Now back to Fiscal Fitness.
1: So let's see, Daniel, I think we've got two or three items left on our 10 important financial issues for married people, and then we'll get into the questions that investors need to ask advisors.
2: So next is roth conversions and personally i'm a big fan of roth conversions when they make sense typically they make sense when income is is lower um because what a roth conversion is is taking traditional pre-tax ira dollars and moving it to a roth or post-tax ira I, ira dollars what that means is you pay tax up front uh, when you make the conversion and then you never pay tax on withdrawals
1: again you're talking about conversions from a 403b sometimes it could be a 457 many times it's a 401k
2: yeah from any pre-tax retirement account regardless of really where you have it you for the most part you can convert those to Roth dollars now a lot of times it make it, it could make sense when you're alive due to higher tax brackets so the same thing as we talked about, like we talked about before, married couples have higher have higher limits on tax brackets than individuals. So if you're if you're married and then you sub, one of them suddenly passes away and you're in a higher tax bracket, that Roth conversion may make less sense.
1: And it's good to note, folks, that a lot of people are concerned that taxes are going to go up. We've been saying this for a long time, and they haven't. They went down, but eventually they probably will. So if you're trying to take some uncertainty out of the equation, now may be the time to look at look uh, participating in converting some money, maybe not all, but maybe even put yourself on a schedule to convert money to a traditional retirement in account into a Roth, pay the tax on the conversion. And then the beautiful thing is now this money is in a position where you decide if and when you want to take a withdrawal. There's no penalty after 59 and a half. There's no taxes ever again because you already paid the tax and now this money is safe and secure, and you're in the driver's seat from the standpoint if or when you'd like to take withdrawals. And that's entirely up to you as opposed to the Infernal Revenue Service requiring you to increase your withdrawals by a small percentage, but an increase nonetheless uh, for the rest of your life. So where you might've been in a position where you could buy and hold, if you're in a traditional retirement account, now you're in a position where you must sell. You have to sell a little bit off every year after 72, And each year it goes up a little bit. And I think the last time I looked around the 80s or 90s, it's like 10, 11, 12 percent. And it keeps going up. So this is a trajectory you want to see that you are on. And maybe you want to forestall that or, as I say, pay the tax now, particularly what might be the lowest tax brackets you'll ever see for the rest of your life. And that way you can stop the IRS from looking over your shoulder, declaring that we will dictate to you how much you must take out and that you must pay the tax on whatever it is you take out. It's a good avenue good option to look at
2: next is a, a hsas or health savings account treated very similarly to iras if the spouse is listed as a beneficiary then the the, the surviving spouse can just about assume the health savings account and you and use those tax-free dollars for health health care purposes Uh, Last on our list is a step-up in basis. This really applies to non-retirement accounts. So individual accounts, joint accounts, real estate, uh, anything that's not a retirement account or, or life insurance. When, what a step up in basis is, is when one person passes away and the next person assumes it, they may get a full or half step up in basis, depending on if you're in a community property state. So let's say we have a married couple and they have a joint account and one of them passes away. Then if you're in a community property state, the whole account automatically gets stepped up to whatever the value was when that person stepped away, passed away. So if you put in 50,000 and it grew to a hundred thousand dollars, then one of them passes away. Then you now your basis is, is has gone up to fifty to a hundred thousand dollars. And the basis to, comes in when you're talking about taxes. How much taxes do you pay is really what you sold it at versus what you paid for it. If you're in a non-community state, then there. If it's in a joint account, then only half of the account gets stepped up in basis. If it's an individual account, and the person assumes it, then it's a full step up the basis. Um, so again, a lot of little intricate parts of this of this kind of stuff sometimes confusing information. And that's for worth the same for real estate.
1: All right. Did we get to number 10? That was 10. All right. So we can move on now to the seven questions to ask your financial advisor. And as I, I like to say that, you know, many of us, most of us are very thoughtful and thorough. We're very diligent. Uh, and yet at the same time, uh, some of us are lazy as, uh, you know, a very hot place below the surface line, right? Uh, so it's good to not be intimidated and to not think, well, I'm, I'm bad at math or I only have some, this This is uh, the all I have or I'm too old. And that's often how people come in the door, but we're going to try and help you come into that door with a little more confidence because uh, when you're looking at hiring a professional, you really want to understand wh- who are these people? What can they do? W- what do I need them for? That's a very important question to for you to Quantify and make as specific as possible. Sometimes people say, well, I just want to make more money. And we're like, here's a dollar. Are you happy? That's not a good way to go about it, right? Uh, or, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be happy. Well, is that a metric? Okay. How do we quantify that? We want to make sure that we quantify things in such a way that you can see improvement. Like we're saying, if you're if it's normal temperature 98.6, you're too hot, you're too cold. What's the temperature relative to 98.6? then we might have uh, something to discuss. So a lot of people try to do it themselves. And um, as long as the market's going up, you feel real good about that. But as we will get to, many people are not at all prepared for a meltdown. We just enjoy the melt up and we think that all trees grow to the sky. And then typically we wake up and it's at OS moment, which of course stands for, oh shucks. So I think a real good question to kind of get us uh, started here is what you, you the investor ask the advisor, What's your definition of a financial planner? Now, we're, again, we're going to suggest that you give some thought to that question for yourself, but pose the question of the professional, ones you're working with and ones you're thinking of hiring. Uh, because the planner can help you with everything from investing retirement to insurance and taxes. You just want to make sure that the planner you go with defines their job in a way that aligns with what you need them to do. Some may only want to deal with your investments. Others may take a holistic approach and even get into the nitty-gritty with your budget. But make sure the planner you hire can do exactly what it is that you need. We, we think that's a, a very important place to, to, to begin. And then number two, you know, what are your qualifications? Again, this is a professional. Many people have uh, advanced degrees. Many are certified financial planners. Uh, many have uh, a number of licenses. Uh, that test that they had to take and and I will say that some actually pay for independent research, which is one of the things that we do to help us become, we think, better qualified to have a, a larger perspective in terms of what's going on in the economy, uh, what does that mean to you, can we discern what kinds of things are advancing versus declining. How do we use, for example, demographics to get a read on the economy in a very real way? And that's the study of what people are buying and selling as opposed to just looking at the plot graph of all the sales and making the linear determination that this is going to keep going up by 11.5 percent forever (laughs) because of course that doesn't happen so when we we found that if we can look at the buying and selling behavior of ordinary americans first please start with ordinary americans first and then look at your family and your friends because your family and friends are probably outliers they're the exceptional folks their household income is more than 65 66 thousand dollars on an annual basis that's where they're not one or two people are working. So you're in a whole different category than the average folks. Study the average first and then look at your situation as opposed to, well, everybody I know is buying a $2 million house. Well, that might be true for the people you know, but that's certainly not true for the average American, where right now I believe the average house cost is. Uh, a whopping 375 000 that's up significantly and we'll talk about that next week but still you, if everybody you know is m- buying a two million dollar house that's vastly different than the majority of people who are buying something for less than four hundred thousand. and then uh how do you get paid why do you think that question should get posed daniel
2: i think this is a really it's a really interesting question because it really kind of determines what kind of advisor there are nowadays there's there's all kinds of different financial advisors and i say that in quotation mark because some sometimes they are financial advisors and sometimes they're just insurance agents so the, the the question is are you are you do you get paid by fees or do you get paid by commissions now fees are can be either an hourly fee um, uh, a flat fee uh, as far a flat dollar amount or a percentage of the assets that a, that a planner manages a, a commission is based on how much goes into a particular investment like a mutual fund as an example in an a-share mutual fund um, the advisor the, the person who sold it will get paid an upfront commission typically five and a half percent if it's a fee-based account and we're talking about an annual advisory fee of one percent then the advisor gets one percent of the assets managed um, every year now the difference between the two one that in the advisor they got a commission upfront he doesn't have any real financial interest in in the account after the upfront sale. With the advisor that's getting 1% per year, you're essentially tied at the hip. You both want that account to be as high as possible because your advisor's income is tied to the value of the account. The higher your account, the more they get paid.
1: And that's the other way to look at it. Let's see who's gonna be uh, more unhappy. If the account's down 50%, me, the advisor, or you, the investor? I think the answer is both. So you <laughs> no know, one's going to be happy. <laughs> nobody's going to be happy in that situation. But if I got a commission, it, I'm, I'm kind of out. And this also relates to what's your definition of financial planner in terms of looking at the structure, the designations, the licenses, those are all useful. But what's the structure of the firm? And what are they uh, proponents of using? Uh, is it proprietary product? Is, are those things that uh, they manufacture? Uh, what's their thinking? What, what, Where do they align in terms of where how they invest money? Do they have a formula? And then uh, how much I should expect to pay you per year? That's a good question, and that should, you should be getting a fair answer to that, and they can actually show you the math. And you want to look at it not just in terms of what you're paying the advisor, but what the total costs are, because there are a lot of costs, let's say, at the mutual fund or the exchange-traded fund level. And then there is, on top of that, the advisor costs. What's the total? And again, what am I paying for? What am I actually getting in this equation? That, that's what's important because, as we say, for many investors, we are very familiar with passive accounts and they're just fine, particularly when there's all trees are growing to the sky and we've seen so much gain, let's say, just since uh, March 9th, 2009, major gains since March 23rd to 2020 till today, major gains. But we would also admit that... Uh, it, it's, it's important to look at how, how can you help me manage risk and, and to quantify that, all right? So in other words, it's one thing to say, is it risk management, but what does that mean to you? Is it, um, is it conservative, moderate, or aggressive, or is it by percentage and dollar amount? In other words, looking at what kind of loss can you accept? That's the way we like to ask the question give you some examples so that you can see in dollars and in percentages, and then see if it's possible to design a portfolio so that it might perform within your specific customized loss parameters. That way, if the market's going down to down like the Titanic, but your money is still above water or certainly along the waterline, it's not crashing and burning and you don't need a Hail Mary pass just to get back in the game. So we would suggest that managing risk is should be one of those questions that you ask and help and the the advisor should be showing you what it is they do relative to your goals so that you can see, is this expectation reasonable? What can I see from the past? There's no guarantee, of course, for the future. But if the account's passive, probably it's going to do whatever the overall market does. If it's actively managed, you may find that it has a system where systematically money gets moved out of risk assets, like out of stocks and out of bonds in 08, into cash, like the money market account by year in 08, where maybe you started 5% cash, but your account automatically, without you having to do anything, got to 50, 60, 70, 100% cash. And then as the market... uh, scenario turned around to the positive. Well, now it's pedal to the metal. And maybe we bring it after March 9th or starting around March 9th, the cash value uh, goes from 100% back down to 5% over time so that you can enjoy all of that up, that upside. So with that, folks, we're going to leave it there this uh, week. We uh, really enjoy spending time with you and we'll look forward to being right back here next Wednesday, 12 to 1 at Voice America Fiscal Fitness. We'll see you right there. Stay Stay safe.